Well, grab your Bible. We are in 2 Timothy. We're going to finish up a message that we started last week. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, if you don't have a Bible, there's some Bibles scattered around just under the seats. Or you can follow along on the screen. I'm going to read it. It's a lengthy passage today, but I want you to hear it all together. It was the premise for last week, and we're going to look at it in more detail this week. 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Remind them, Timothy, of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God. Not to wrangle about words, literally. War of words. Which is useless to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly chatter and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. And their talk, well, it'll spread like gangrene among them. And among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they have upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. And everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware, and some of honor, and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. But be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. What we find here is what Paul knows all too well and what Timothy is experiencing firsthand. Namely, that uh, there is a great danger to the gospel of God, and it lives all too often in the house of God. We are all too often our greatest hurdle to overcome, aren't we? But overcome we must. Uh, A large part of living Christianity, it seems to me, is getting out of my own way. I'm my biggest problem. And maybe some of you have found that to be true as well. Not that I'm your biggest problem, but that you're your own biggest problem. Yeah? And when it comes to us, then it seems that collectively, we very often can't seem to stay out of our own way. We very often are our own problem, aren't we? Last week, I submitted to you that the underlying warning of this passage is this. The light of the gospel cannot be put out, but it can be hidden or blocked by the darkness of the issues of our own life and our own life together. Instead of 
instead of being the very ones who are able to be the torchbearers, instead of holding forth the light of the gospel of grace high for all to see in our world, we, with our own selves, cast a shadow over that, over that very light. We block the light with the darkness sometimes of our own living it out. Paul's called Timothy to grab the torch and run hard. And, and, and that's what the gospel calls us to. But Paul knows that this race isn't just some idyllic run on the beach, is it? I mean, it's not the chariots of fire guy running on the beach. That's not, that's not true Christianity. I used to think uh, of Paul's analogy of Christianity being a race in track terms. Anybody ever run track? My football coach in high school made me run track. And that's what I thought about the Christian race, as Paul has coined it. That's what I thought of it like, is, is being on this, this track, running on a smooth surface, on a well-defined track that's visible from any point on the track. It would surely take endurance in, in all my heart, but I'd have good running shoes, nice comfy socks to wear on that nice smooth track, nice dry fit tank top that whisks, whisks the sweat from you, right? It keeps you cool. And those way too short track running shorts, you know those things I'm talking My football coach wanted me to run track, mostly because I was slow. And uh, I said, okay. But then I realized that I had to wear those shorts, right? And all my buddies made fun of me because I had these long, gangly frog legs. And so here I am striding out in these way too short shorts. But that's, that's the kind of the, not that picture, but the idea of, of Christianity being this race is more like that in our minds sometimes. That, you know, we've got the track shoes, we've got the well-defined track. But, but the truth is, it's running through the mud and the muck, isn't it? It's through dangerous and unexpected terrain of real life. Truth is, the race is uh, much more interesting and tenuous than the picture of uh, that well-groomed circular track visible from any point, running in, in one lane. A Christian has to have the ability not to just endure the straight distance, listen now, but to leap the hurdles, navigate the wilderness, and sidestep the landmines that are very often hidden from plain sight. You know what this passage is about? The second Timothy passage this morning. It's about Paul warning Timothy of the pending dangers ahead of him. The crippling dangers that must be sidestepped by the torchbearers. The hurdles that must be overcome by the one who takes hold of the baton of truth. It's not a straight course. It's not without potholes. Let me say this before we look at the passage. The intent of the passage, you have to understand, is not to refute the actual error itself, particularly. The intent of the passage is to warn about the impending danger that comes along with the error. To tell the truth, the passage is just as much concerned with how we respond to the error how we face the error as it is the damage the error itself can do. Put another way, if we handle the error wrong when it comes in, 
it can be just as devastating as the effect of the error itself. The church is going to overcome itself. Here's the thought. If the church is going to overcome itself, if we're going to get out of our own way, we've got to draw some principles. I think this is a, this is a passage that's chock full of how do we get out of our own way, church? How do we, how do we keep ourselves from stopping ourselves? How do, we, how do we stop from imploding because of what might or might not be going on in this body? I'm going to give you, uh, I'm going to give you a bunch of points here. You can write these down or you can just sit back and absorb. Some of them are going to be obvious. But this passage, I think, gives us answers to how we overcome, how we deal with ourselves, how we keep from stopping the gospel moving forward and being used by by our very lives. Number one, here's the first one. We need to continuously be reminded of the big picture, don't we? We need to continuously be reminded of the big picture. When he starts this passage, the first thing he says, verse 14, remind them of these things. This is where we focused last week. What are these things? It's what he's just said. Verse 8, Jesus is risen. He is alive and well, just like God said he would do, God has done. Verse 9, God can't be stopped. His word will not be imprisoned. Verse 10, so Paul says, I'll do anything and I'll endure Everything for the sake of the eternal message of this God who is who he says he is and has done what he said he will do. He is risen, just like he said, and his word cannot be stopped. Paul said, I'm getting in that game. I'm going to carry that torch if it means my death. And then he just breaks into worship. Right. And so you get this this magnificent treatise on on this eternal plan of God from the view of Paul in a dungeon. And the first thing he says to overcoming the problems that might creep into the church through error and false teaching, etc., is continuously remind them of the big picture. Remind them that God is doing something from eternity to eternity here for the souls of men. That, that big picture perspective keeps us from, guess what, focusing so in on our own stuff that our own stuff becomes what's more important than the big picture. Very often, error and strife and wrangling and problems in the body come when we begin to focus our perspective in on us and what's going on here and what, what our opinions are, as opposed to what is God doing? Paul could only give his life in the way he gave it because he had an eternal viewpoint. From eternity to eternity, he knew what God was doing, so he knew what he should be doing. And the little things never got in the way because of it. That's where we start in overcoming the issues. It's the eternal perspective of God. What is God doing? And where do I fit in? And so the natural response then is, I don't have time for this, this small stuff. I don't have time for the nonsense. Continuously remind them. Number two, second point to help us overcome ourselves. To be charged in the presence of God, verse 14, means that we ought to be carefully considerate of our actions. The presence of God brings sobriety to the situation. Very often the presence of God is mentioned in Scripture and it's a place of peace and rest. 
But the majority of times that the presence of God is mentioned in Scripture, it's a time when God's presence causes an attitude of awakening and sobriety among his people. And it's, it's this picture of us not toiling on the, the things that we're doing and being so distracted to the big picture, but realizing that God has stepped into the room. And when God steps into the room with his purposes and his plans, we're, we're forced to lift our heads and lift our eyes off of whatever, whatever is keeping us focused down here to, in fact, the very presence of God is here. And Paul calls on the presence of God to remind the people of that eternal perspective and then to charge them not to be wrangling about the word wars going on in the church. That presence of God is, is needed. How, how, do we, how do we move forward as a church and be the kind of church God wants us to be? Number one, we've got to keep this big picture perspective. We can't get so focused with stuff down here that we get distracted from what God is doing from eternity to eternity. Number two, we've got to always remember that, that the presence of God makes a difference. And sometimes we can toil our way right out of the presence of God. We can forget that God is present. Very often, I'm reminded, most often, when I'm saying a blessing over food, it just occurs to me that as I'm eating and I'm going throughout my day, that God is actually here. And very often I pray the same prayer in the midst of my day and going through and, and, and feeding my body and doing the things that I just have to do to get through the day, I'm reminded that God is walking with us. We are to be walking with him, fully aware of his presence. His presence makes a difference. Let me give you the third one. Our debating over some things can easily become counterproductive. Our debating over some things can easily become counterproductive. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, not to have word wars, which, he says, are useless. And they even lead to the ruin of the hearers. I, I like to debate things, guys. I like to talk theology. I like to talk church philosophy. I like to talk about the right way and the wrong way. I like to talk about the deep things of God. Um, but sometimes, at the wrong time, with the wrong attitudes, and even in the presence of the wrong people, it can be the wrong thing to do. And it can go to a place that is whole, from holy to a place that is completely unholy. And it does more damage than it does good. There is a fine line that we must be cautiously aware of crossing. Um, my wife is a pretty simple thinker. By simple, I don't mean simplistic. I don't mean she's a simpleton. I mean that she cuts clear and straight to like the real deal. Like what is the, what is the point? What is the bottom line issue? And very often she's within earshot of some of these conversations that I have debating different issues, different philosophies, different theologies, etc. And I can just tell when she starts to just get tired of it. Because God has so given her the ability just to, to, to pierce through all of the stuff and all the debating. And uh, more than once, after the conversations are over, when we're by ourselves, she'll say, is it really, is it really that complicated? 
Is it really that difficult? Is Christianity really meant to be so confusing? You know what I realize? That sometimes, sometimes just talking over some things can indicate that very thing, that it's, that it's, it's more complicated than it really is. And what seems to be wrangling over words, what seems to be what he'll call empty chatter, can be damaging to those who are in the conversation and even those within earshot of the conversation. Sometimes I realize that uh, hearing those conversations, if they're not guarded conversations, can be destructive. You know what the word here in verse 14 for ruin is? It's the Greek word katastrophe. It's a compound word, katastrophe. Kata means down. Strophe means to turn. Turn down. It's, it's a word that paints the picture of flipping things up on their head. We get the word catastrophe. Paul says this, this danger could be catastrophic in the church. It could be catastrophic. Too much warring over words can be destructive to the hearers. It can flip what's right up on its head. And things can get completely confused. And it can be the ruin of the hearers. We can do damage, church, just with our words that is destructive to the body. Number four, the truth, it seems to me, is always the best remedy. How do we, how do we combat this? The truth is the remedy. Verse 15 Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of, what does it say? Truth. How do you become diligent or where are you to be diligent? How do you become approved as a workman? How is it that you become unashamed? It's in the word of truth. Think about it this way. How do we overcome ourselves? How do we, how do we fight this battle when, when issues come in, when false teaching comes in, when debates come in, when opinions start to, to turn into to warring of words, when there's this wrangling, when there's this empty chatter? How do we deal with it? I think one point we have to draw from this passage is we continually feed truth to the body. Truth ought to be to the body like fertilizer to your lawn. How do you get the weeds out of your lawn? Well, it's not just by spraying Roundup on the weed. Very often by doing that, you kill the grass around it even. You know what, you know what the professionals will tell you? That the best and the long term and the permanent remedy to you building a plush, lush lawn is and getting the weeds out is not, is not going after directly just the weeds. It's fertilizing the lawn. You know what happens? The roots then become so strong and so diversely spread that they choke out the weeds and the weeds have no place. Church, how do we build such a, such a grounded and rooted foundation in the body so that error can't even creep in, so that there's not this type of error creeping into the body? We continue to feed it the, fertilize, the fertilizer of the truth, the truth of the word. The word strengthens the roots of the body and weeds of error get choked out. Truth is the remedy. Number five, wherever conjecture and random opinion and error are allowed to live, they will in fact breed. 
Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. It's not going to take us the direction we want to go. It's going to take us backwards, church. Now look at this. And their talk will spread like, what's the word? Gangrene, my translation says. Could be translated cancer. Gangrene's a good translation. Isn't that just a nasty word? That's the picture Paul has in his mind of when we let this thing just run rampant. When this becomes the indicator of the body, when this is going on in the body, it's, it's a funk that just spreads throughout the church. And you've got to cut it off. It's infectious to the rest of the body. It spreads like a cancer. And you have to deal with it. If it's left unattended, if it's left to itself, conjecture, random opinion, error, It'll breed. It'll multiply. And we are to avoid it like the plague. This is not, one pastor said, this thing of the church. It's not the free speech platform of Berkeley where anybody and everybody gets to say whatever they want to say and teach whatever they want to teach and bring whatever opinion they want to bring. The body of Christ is to be founded on the truth and the truth alone And it is to so link the body and so be rooted in the church that the weeds are choked out. Uh, There are things, I've said this to you before, there are things that you'll never hear me preach from this pulpit. Um, Debatable issues, issues of opinion, issues of the conscience. That I may have an opinion on, but if I give you my opinion from right here, you're going to take them as thus says the Lord. And I'm not going to do that. And you know what we'll have? We'll have this guy who says, well, I disagree because I think this. And we'll have this guy who says, I disagree and I think this. And then we have this this warring over things that are secondary to the primary big picture of what God is doing from eternity to eternity. So I'm not going to tell you what I think about birth control. I'm not going to tell you what I think about uh, dancing in Christians. I'm not going to tell you what I think about watching rated R movies. I'm not going to tell you what I think about whether Christians should be on Facebook or not. I'm not going to tell you what I think about whether or not they should sell alcohol on Sunday. I'm not going to tell you what I think about all these different things. I can't afford, we can't afford the split. We can't afford the warring that might go on when we start debating over all these secondary, second-tier issues in the body of Christ, and then we get our focus down here on these things and more of what we're against than what we're for, and now we've missed what God's doing in the big picture. And no wonder we won't abandon ourselves, because we won't abandon ourselves to God for those issues. We'll abandon ourselves to God for the purpose that's from eternity to eternity. That's what gets... The life of the believer. Let me give you another one. The church ought to be a settled place. It isn't a place built on shaky ground. Verse 19, nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. You know what that means? You know why he says that? You know why he quotes that? The Lord knows those who are his is because the example he gives of error creeping in 
is that these, these guys came in, they said the resurrection has already taken place. And so then you got Christians sitting around saying, well, if the resurrection has already taken place, then what, what about me? Like, where do I fit in this? And so now the basic issue that he uses as an example here is, is that people start questioning their own salvation. They start questioning their own, their own place in the kingdom. And so now what about what happens? What happens? And, and what happens is, is you got people who are, who are upset. The faith of some is flipped upside down. It's catastrophic to the body. And his answer to that is, nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands and there is a seal on his people. You know what I think the idea here is? I think the idea is that the church needs to be a place of surety. The church needs to be a place built on a firm foundation so that every wind of doctrine that comes through and comes by and that's spit out by this guy or that guy can't toss us to and fro like this giant wave that just flips us over on our head. And now we're all, we're all lost and we don't know what's up and what's down. That can't be the picture of the church. The picture of the church in Paul's mind is that based on truth, Based on truth, this is a place of solid ground. You don't come in here and find that it's, it's shaky and it's confusing. Because we're all debating and we're all, we're all warring over these secondary issues. And who knows what to believe? It's got to be a place founded on truth, solid truth. A church ought to be a settled place. Truth is a sure foundation that allows us to stand firm. Firm and upright, declaring truth. Let me give you another one. Number seven, we each have a choice to make. Verse 20, now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful to the master, prepared for every good work. We have a choice, church. How do we combat this? How do we how do we get out of our own way? We have to understand that we have a choice in this passage, whether we're going to be used for honorable deeds or whether we're going to be used for dishonorable deeds, whether we're going to cleanse ourselves from all this ungodliness. And in the context, that means whether we're going to get involved in this empty and useless chatter that leads to the ruin and the destruction of the hearers potentially, or whether we're going we're gonna to separate ourselves from that and whether we're going to be useful to God for honorable terms. That's our choice. We make decisions daily whether or not we're going to get involved in this or that and get sucked into this and get sucked into that and put ourselves up on the shelf by God because he won't be able to use us because we've so invested our life over here in this secondary inconsequential opinion issue or because we've kept ourselves in the big picture perspective from eternity to eternity. Now God can continue to use us. The master can use his vessel. We, we have that choice. We must choose to be used by the master. Number eight, Christianity means we run from some things and we run to some things. Christianity means we run from some things and to some things. Look at verse 23. But refuse, refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. Verse 22, look at the verb that precedes this. 
flee. We don't just refuse it. We flee from youthful lusts. And in the context here, the youthful lusts are the idea of all these things that suck us into these debates. It's as if Paul says it's a childish, it's a childish situation. We need to grow up past this and realize what's important and what's not. Where we need to spend our words and where we don't need to spend our words. Where we need to invest our lives and where we don't need to invest our lives. We need to refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. But we also need to make sure that we're fleeing from those things. It's the idea of turning and running the opposite direction. Flee from youthful lusts and pursue. What do we run to? Here's what we run to, church. We pursue righteousness. Now look at the choice of words here. Righteousness, faith, love, peace. Those are what we run to. And we don't run alone. Interesting here. He says we need to find partners. We need to cling to what? Those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. You know the inference here is that if we run the other way, very often in our childish, foolishness, youthful lusts, our ignorant speculations, our wrangling, our empty chatter, we produce quarrels from a childlike mentality, an immature mentality. He's calling to the church, let's grow up. Let's grow up. Let's make sure we see the big picture. Let's make sure that we don't let this secondary stuff get in the way. It all too often does. Instead, run from it. Flee from it. Link to those in the body who live from a pure heart, whose desire matches God's desire. It's not selfishness that motivates them. And very often when it comes to those who bring error in their own opinion and want to debate and want to argue, it's out of selfishness. He says, link up with those of pure heart. Number nine, there is a demeanor that ought to mark the church. If you ask the random guy on the street, what is a Christian and what does he stand for? Think about it. What do they say? A Christian is someone who doesn't like this. He hates drinking. Uh, you got to go to church on Sunday. They boycott Disney World. Uh, they blow up these things. Uh, you get this list of everything that we're against. And they're typically negative issues, aren't they? They're most often secondary issues that we focused in on and forsaken the bigger issue. And that's what marks us in their minds. And then if you ask them, who is Jesus and what does he stand for? You know what, you know what very often they rightly, they rightly say? Love, peace. He was kind. He was a gentle teacher. And some, something, something doesn't, doesn't balance out there. Something doesn't equal. Somewhere we're off. Something has gone wrong. That can't be the case. There has to be a demeanor that marks the church of peace and gentleness. Look at verse 24. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach. Even when he's wrong, he must be patient. And with gentleness... He corrects those who are in opposition. 
Is that the attitude of the church in the eyes of the world? It ought be. That even with those that we are in opposition against, whether it's in the body, and that's the context here, or even if it's with those outside the body, is this, is this a perspective that we're, that we're giving the world? Paul isn't worried about the error right here. He's taught to the error. Romans, Galatians, Ephesians. He's taught to the error. You know what his concern is here, church? It's how we deal with it. Timothy, here's how you're to respond. When you got empty chatter, when you got, when you got error that potentially can wreak havoc on the church, even so, when there's cancer in the body, even, even so, when it's spreading among the body like gangrene, the attitude we ought to have is this, not quarrelsome, kind, able to teach through the error, patient even when we're wronged. Isn't that interesting? Gentleness, as we correct those who are in opposition. Do we correct? Do we teach truth? You better believe it. We fertilize, we fertilize, we fertilize with truth. We strengthen the roots, we strengthen the roots, we strengthen the roots. And that will choke out weeds. When we have to, we've got to pluck weeds and we've got to get them by the root. But how do we do it? What is the attitude of the body? There it is. It ought to match what even the world says about our Jesus. Kind. He was patient. He was gentle. He was loving. Those ought to be the things they say of us. There should be a demeanor that marks the church likened to that of Jesus. Let me give you one more. Guess who's behind all this nonsense? We want to overcome this problem, this issue. We've got to know who's behind all this. <laughs> Look at what it says in verse 26. And they come to their senses. The desire of the, of the believer is to be gentle, correcting those in opposition, so that God may grant them repentance, verse 25, leading to the knowledge of truth, and that they, who's they? Those in opposition. That they may come to their senses. It's a picture of being sober-minded. That they might... That they might Awaken, come to their senses, that God might grant them repentance, and that they might escape from the snare of, who is it? Of the devil. It's the picture of an animal being caught in a bear trap, having been held captive by him to do his will. You know what's going on here? You know what we're really fighting against here? It's not, just, it's not just the individual error. It's not just the individual people who bring the error. What we're fighting against here is a, is a ploy of the devil himself to shoot the church in the foot so we hobble, that we, that we dampen our own lamps, that we cast a shadow on our own light instead of carrying that torch high for all the world to see, bringing light into a dark world, you know what Satan very often does? He causes us to hide our own, our own light. Our own lives get in the way of that light. You know what the word captive here is? We get the word from this Greek word. We get the word zoo from this word. 
It's the idea of being taken captive alive. And there's two pictures I think you can get here from this word. You can get the picture of a zoo, an animal that's taken captive and put behind bars. That's what Satan has done with us. He's put us, in a sense, in a zoo. And that's the portrait that the church often looks like. It's a zoo in here. Because we're, we're biting each other about this and that and we're arguing about this and that. And we don't, we don't paint a portrait of peace. We don't paint a portrait of gentleness. It's an all-out zoo. You know what the other picture you get from this word is? Being taken captive, alive. We become prisoners of war to the opposition. The devil himself. He holds us as prisoners of this war that is raging. This spiritual war that is going on. When we, when we get sucked into this, he takes us captive. And we become prisoners of war in this eternal battle. And we become, in a sense, useless. We're taken off the front lines and we've been held captive. And Satan sits back and he smiles and he says, I don't have to worry about them. Satan's pretty good at what he does. He's pretty crafty. And Ricky, you said here earlier, rightly, that sometimes we, uh, we're our own worst problem. But the truth is, uh, I think Satan was smiling as you were yelling at your kids. <laughs> he says, I, I got you. I got you. And I can, I can potentially put a damper on the whole day. I can squeeze your heart here with guilt that you can't even, you can't even go into worship today. Satan is so, he's so manipulative. And if he doesn't use this way, he'll use another. I can't say it any better than a guy named Tommy Nelson, so I'm going to let him say it. Listen to this, and we'll close. If I was the devil, I'll tell you what I'd do. I would try to deceive you and get you into error. I would get you off base. And if you still stayed true, I would try to disqualify you. I would get you immoral. I would get you where no one would believe what came out of your mouth. I would make you a tabloid where nobody believed you. I would remove your confidence where you were afraid to speak because your life was such a shambles. I would get you into sin. I would prowl like a roaring lion to devour you morally. And if I couldn't do that, I would try to make you successful. And I would distract you if I couldn't disqualify you. I would get you busy. I would get you so distracted and disattracted from the gospel that no longer would your prayers be about holiness and souls. They would only be about the bottom line in your business. I would get you materialistic and no longer concerned about the spiritual nature of life. If I couldn't do that, I would divide you. If I couldn't divide you, I've almost lost you. You know what I'd do then? I would discourage you. And then if I couldn't discourage you, I'd try to get I would I would try my best. That's what I would do to take you. Satan would love nothing more than to render this church ineffective. 
And he'll use us against ourselves, won't he? We keep things pretty simple around here. We have seven member expectations. Maybe you've seen them. The last member expectation. Anybody know it? The last member expectation on our list, not because it's the least, but maybe because it's the most important. We want it to be the last thing you remember on the list. Is that we as members of this body will be committed to guarding the unity of the family. Committed to guarding, fighting for the unity of this body. Because if we don't, if we don't, Satan's got us. He divides us and renders us useless. And God has to take yet another church, another ineffective church, because of sin. Because of maybe just words. You know where this whole thing starts? Did you notice it? It's just with simple words. It's another sermon for another day. But it starts with just words. It can be that easy for him to get a hold of us. And now God has to put us on the shelf. And we have yet another church that is rendered ineffective for this eternal plan of God. For the sake of those who are chosen, Paul said, I endure all things so that they also might obtain salvation and the eternal glory that comes with Jesus Christ. But we miss it because we're sidelined by our own stuff. You want to fight for something, church? Fight for the unity of the body. Let me just promise you, in a season where I believe God is moving in this body, where God is moving in this church and expanding our effectiveness, if he can't bring in error, and if we keep preaching truth and preaching truth to drown out the error that comes, you know what he'll do? Is he'll find just small ways to get us biting each other that we separate and we divide over something secondary. And he'll stop us right in our tracks. He'll stop us right in our tracks. I think, uh, I think as a church, uh, as Christianity in general, we've got to apologize maybe to the world. We've got to say we're sorry for getting in the way of the light of the gospel. That God calls us, that Timothy charges, uh, that Paul charges Timothy to carry forth from death to generation, to generation, to generation. We've got to say, I'm sorry for, for getting in the way of the light that I'm intended to be in your darkness. Uh, if you've yet to come to Christ, if you've yet to buy it, if you've yet to say, you know what? He is risen. He has done what he's said he would do. He is who he says he is. Uh, if you've yet to buy into that eternal truth, it might just be, unfortunately, because... Someone in a church, or maybe a church collectively, has gotten in the way. And we've got to say, we're sorry. We've got to say, we'll fix it. We'll fix it. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we don't want to get lost in a difficult, difficult passage. We want to say to you that we, uh, we love you and your, your plans and your purposes more than our own 
our own stuff and our own opinions and our own debates and our own our own simple words that sometimes lord just they just spread like wildfire throughout the body your word says and they wreak havoc and maybe they seem important to us at times and and maybe they seem uh, like like valuable things to argue about and debate about but lord so very often we just hurt ourselves we do more damage than we do good lord give us sensitivity Give us wisdom and discernment to know how to stand for truth in love. Give us the demeanor of peace and gentleness and kindness. Might we forever stand for truth. Might we ever teach through error. But Lord, give us the right attitude to do it. Lord, don't let us render ourselves ineffective and useless. For the sake of the kingdom. Lord, don't let us get in our own way. Keep us eternally minded. Lord, let us rise above ourselves. Cause the church to rise above our own pettiness, our own opinions, our own beliefs, our own positions. Lord, might we rise above so that we would be effective for the souls of those who are still out there. The truth is, Lord, the the world should look at the church and smile because it is beautiful. They should look at our unity among our diversity and know that there is something divine going on in this place. Make that true, Lord. Make that true of this place called Cornerstone. Use this truth of your word, Lord, to fertilize our hearts for pure and holy growth and righteousness and kindness and grace. We sang earlier, Lord, that your grace is amazing. The church ought to have a picture of amazing grace. Might we be seen as gracious and merciful just as you are. That the lost might run to you. Father God, let the church rise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.